everyone. Welcome back to the Geek Warning Podcast brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and I'm joined right here next to me at the Boulder Groupetto by Ace Mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. And as usual, we've also got my fellow Escape Collective tech editor, Dave Roman, Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, Zach, what's, the, what, what's maybe the biggest headache you've had to deal with in terms of a repair or build or something in the last couple of weeks? Um, hmm. Biggest headache. I mean, those wheels I was showing you just a bit ago are pretty fun because they have no external holes for the spoke nipples. Oh, should, should we give people a rundown on what you're building here? So lacing those up has been fun. There's just some like very weight weenie wheels, extra light hubs, and should be like sub thousand grams. But yeah, fishing the nipples through has been really fun. I mean, there's like ways to make it easy, but it still is much more time consuming. Fun or not. Uh, Dave, I'm sure you're going to be very surprised at what I'm going to ask you. It's been a couple of days since I've talked to you. So what, what, what tools have you bought in the last couple of days? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I answered this in, in the Ask a Wrench episode earlier in this week. So it's, it's worrying that I have a new answer. Um, <laughs> I kind of figured you would. It's been like two days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Still on the screwdriver beat. I've now added uh, another brand of RC tools hex drivers. So they only go, they only go up to three millimeters, most RC tool brands. So they're pretty precision. But uh, yeah, after the last RC tools I bought, someone suggested that I should try another brand because uh, they're even better. I'll save my opinion until I've actually used them correctly, but oh my, they are quite extremely uh, precise. So they're kind of like, as you put them into like a Shimano 3 mil bolt, they kind of like feel like you're, you're pushing the air out. Oh, it's, it's quite precise. Yeah, wow. it's quite ridiculous. So. Okay. Dave, are you, are you at least cash positive working for Escape or no? <laughs> I don't know. You shouldn't have to think about the answer for this, Dave. Yeah, touch and go. I'd like to think my moonlighting funds the purchases, but I don't think it does. So I'm pretty sure it does not. No, I think I'm that's, quite certain it does not. Yeah, I think that's the. Maybe it's just better if we don't think about it. Yeah, I need to sell some stuff. Actually, is there a market for used tools? There is. I mean, I I've just kind of stopped selling tools because I've sold quite a few over the years of as an upgrade, and then later on I wanted that thing as a comparison point kind of started to hoard them now um unless i've got duplicates i actually did at one point buy five sets of porsche uh limited edition screwdrivers oh is that one of the ones that you gave me so i bought them like at at a very competitive price but i've held on to them long enough now that no one else has them and they're like 150 to 200 dollars a set now (laughs) (laughs) so i think it might be time to cash out oh man that's really funny (laughs) okay (laughs) all right well We've got a great show, as always, for you in store today. Uh, We're going to chat about the pretty crazy selection of discounts that are seemingly everywhere in the bike industry right now. We're going to talk about some new developments about a popular Colorado-based mountain bike company that sadly is apparently no more. Get a little pricing update from Zwift. We're also going to chat about whether better aluminum bikes should be making a comeback on the road. We're going to pick one, exclamation point. Uh, we've got a good PSA to share with you today, and we're going to mix things up a little bit this week with an interview Dave did with the folks at We Are Tools last week. Uh, but first, a couple of little announcements for everyone. Uh, in case you haven't noticed yet, we now have bonus Geek Warning podcast episodes. These are going to run every other week on top of the regular show, and they're going to be more in-depth with stuff like our much-loved Ask a Rent series, deep dives into individual topics, and detailed interviews with various industry folks. Uh, we've already done two Ask a Rent episodes, actually, and you don't want to miss the next bonus episode of Geek Warning because... We're going to be chatting about everything you want and need for your home workshop and best practices for how to set everything up. Uh, those bonus episodes, the full bonus episodes anyway, they're only going to be available to Escape Collective members 
So if you're already on board, check your inbox for an email from us explaining how to access all that extra podcast content. If you're not a member, however, lucky for you, we are running a promo right now where you can get full access to everything we do at Escape Collective, including both the written and audio content and our members-only Discord community for just $1 for the first month, at least anyway. After that, it's $1 million a month. Uh, head over to escapecollective.com slash join, select the monthly subscription option and use the code podcast in all caps at checkout. Okay, back to the show. Uh, I'd just like to clarify, it's only $1 million in, in Australian dollars. I think that equates to about 5 or $6 USD. <laughs> yes, I think that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere around. It's still very affordable. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's get into the first, first little bit of news here. Um, as I mentioned, and I'm sure anyone who is listening to this podcast has probably noticed, if you have been in the market for anything bicycle related, now is a really, really good time to be buying stuff because there are massive discounts to be had just about everywhere. It seems like, you know, 50% or more even, and seemingly from almost every major brand too, like Specialized, Fox, Easton, Rafa, Hunt, whatever, you name it. Um, like even Moots, that, you know, boutique titanium builder in Colorado, they've got a pretty small army of complete new bikes not demos, so these are brand new, complete bikes, then they're selling those at pretty steep discounts, which has kind of been pretty unheard of in previous years. Uh, it's worth pointing out that not everyone is down in the industry. You know, companies like Garmin, Lifetime, Thule, they're actually up a fair bit, but needless to say, there seems to be a glut of product in the market and kind of wondering what this might indicate for the industry as a whole. Does anybody have any thoughts here? I mean, you, you got the right word. The industry is in a hole. <laughs> um. Yeah, I just remember every time that there's a news article about like such and such companies doing layoffs or someone's closed or there's extra inventory or whatever. I just remember like one of the podcasts we did like early COVID days when it was clear that there was a very high demand for bikes. Mm. James, you said somehow the bike industry is going to mess this up. Oh, did I say that? You said that. Huh. And every time I see one of these articles, I that comes to my brain and they did mess it up. So, oops. I mean, the bike industry is notorious for being fairly short-sighted, and certainly when things were ramping up during the COVID boom, a lot of people were making fun of companies like Shimano, for example, for not ramping up their production mm -hmm. as maybe people would have liked them to. Like, it was just impossible to get Shimano stuff for a really, really long time. Yeah, Shimano sales are down now, uh, certainly because a lot of the you know decreased OEM orders and stuff like that, but... They also maybe didn't invest in like new factories and a whole lot of, you know, new kind of like infrastructure and, Con and conservative kind of growth to get things going. Yeah. yeah. So like they were definitely playing the long game. But if we look at a lot of these other companies, I mean, I, I've heard of companies that have years worth of inventory on hand right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, demand increased three to four times in, in most countries and in most product categories. And some brands uh, decided to increased supply to match that demand and then all of a sudden the demand went back to what i'd call normal demand and i mean i think all of a sudden they had four three four times the supply that they needed i think too like right when there's okay there's all this demand let's just meet that right like there's this manufacturing delay so by the time everyone all the factories and stuff get caught up and the product actually lands yeah and like we've reached the end of the bike boom and now it's like okay shit what do we do with all this inventory and yeah, warehouses full of stuff, and then it's on sale. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of desperation here, and and you can understand why. Like the warehousing in itself has a ingrained cost, and especially if brands are over their capacity for warehousing, they're then having to uh, lease other warehouses or or pay uh, fees for for third party warehousing, and 
there's huge costs in just keeping this stock and obviously it's the bike industry so that stock is also dating all the time as well like it's it's not going to last forever these bikes you know they're give a year or two and they, they will be out of date so there is desperation to move that stock on and that's exactly what we're seeing in the marketplace at the moment and it's it's absolutely become a, a buyer's paradise but the downside to that is most people can't afford to just buy new bikes they need to get rid of their old one first and with these new bikes so so uh heavily discounted and so cheap the the used market has obviously crashed as well and uh so yeah you've got like this this weird thing where you, everyone can buy a bike at half price but they can't sell their own bike for anywhere near what it's worth or what they think that's worth so they're they're holding on to their old bike and not buying a new bike as a result unfortunately i think this is going to last a few years because as you say james it's there's enough stock here that yeah there's enough stock here to last the these companies a few years of, of sales it's quite the pickle uh zach are you seeing anything from from your end as I mean, your shop is primarily service only, but you do you do have some like a little bit of stock. You do order some stuff for people. Yeah, yeah. But are you seeing any discounts at the wholesale end? I feel like somewhat. It's not. I wouldn't say it's like oh, this one entire category has been discounted or this one particular brand. But it's like okay, this product clearly they over ordered and have a million of them sitting in the warehouse, so that's on sale, which is kind of nice. But it's also the kind of thing where it's like I mean, you're just talking about bikes. It's the same thing. It's like oh reverb seat posts are on sale i'm not just going to buy 20 reverb seat posts just because i can right like like sometimes it works out and it's nice but other times it's just like oh look that's really cheap right now sucks for them (laughs) man well i know we've been talking about this on several episodes and maybe people are tired of hearing about you know some doom and gloom sort of things in the industry but this doesn't seem good and like you said dave it really does seem like it's going to take several years to dig our way out of this yeah the sad thing is, for as big a boom as the bike industry experienced during COVID, I wonder if we're going to come out like net negative when all is said and done. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting that, you, you know, you mentioned Toule and, and Garmin are, are seeing increases. And it's a tough one because their increases are happening in the fitness division, which includes cycling, but isn't limited to. So their growth and success is, is not necessarily straight down to cycling as, as the sport. Yeah, it could be telling that perhaps their growth is in other fitness areas. As far as cycling specific brands go, there's there's not a lot of uh not a lot of positivity to be seen at the moment. Well, like I said, if however you have been looking to upgrade your current bike or have been in the market for a new one and maybe don't have to sell your old one, baby, mm-hmm. now is a really, really good time because stuff's real cheap. Yeah, for a consumer this is great. But as a whole, like for the industry, it's not so good. Yeah, not great at all. Well, yeah, and then like I guess even after after we kind of come out of this, assuming we do come out of this, uh, there is going to be that lingering expectation from people. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to pay a regular price for this. Like this stuff has been half off for the last three right. years. Like why pay $500 for a pair of shoes when I just bought a pair of shoes for 200 yep. last year, right? Like- yep. Yep. And then on top of that, I mean, there's, there's so many compounding issues with this, but you know, we're seeing more bike shops close in the last six months than we've seen in the last decade, I've, I feel like. Um, Perhaps, you know, I don't, I don't have stats to support that, but it just, it certainly is a, a feeling that I get in the industry with the number of shops you hear about closing in recent time. And uh, yeah, you just got to wonder what it's, what it's like for new riders getting into the sport from here on out or, or yeah, just people that, that want local support. I mean, how, how good that support's going to be if uh, all these shops are closing. Um, because I guess another thing regarding shops is, even though so many of these companies are heavily discounting what they have on hand, that doesn't mean that they're that they're retroactively applying those discounts to orders that 
shops had already placed that wholesale Correct. however yep. many months ago. Yep. Um, so you have a lot of shops who paid normal rates for their stock on hand, and now they're dealing with customers who are able to buy those same items directly from the manufacturer for far bigger discounts than what they're able to offer. Like they can probably buy it for less than they paid for it. Yeah. Less than the shop paid for it. So yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely lots of shop, definitely lots of discounts at shop level too. It's interesting too on the industry side, because like you said, like companies have three or four years worth of inventory in a warehouse, but let's say we're just going to use mountain bikes. Yeah. They're all 50% off or whatever, but like that company still has a product team designing new mountain bikes. And do you like put everything on hold or do you still come out with new products and fill the warehouse up more and my, devalue the stuff that's already on sale? Or do you just like fire your product team because you don't need new product? My understanding is a lot of brands have been delaying their new releases, uh, like at least the production of the new releases, trying to clear out of stock. Or uh, in some cases, one of the bikes I tested came with, you know, the, the year model on the box was from the year before what they were actually marketing it as. Uh, so it tells me that they'd been sitting on that for a while. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, new stuff being held back, specifically trying to clear out this this overstock. And uh, the other point I just had w- with the the local shops is, you know, we've got Black Friday coming up. All these brands that w- that we've mentioned, a lot of them are, are now s- are forced to sidestep around their retailers and they're selling consumer direct because they have no other option. They just need to find new channels to clear out the stock. But I'd like to just give out a little shout out for you know if you've got a local shop that you love and you feel like they do good things for the local community. Try support them during this time. Rather than buy that product, you see it 50% off in advertised to you on Instagram, maybe maybe call the shop and see what they can do for you. Because perhaps they can offer you that same price and they might get a little cut out of it too. And if nothing else, I mean, even if they're not going to be making much money, if at all, on some of the stock that you might be buying from them, mm. if they're able to recoup some of their capital, then mm. that would be a good thing too. Because yeah. certainly the shops that are going to survive are going to need cash on hand. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of things closing down, uh, I think the three of us here will be familiar with the mountain bike company, Gorilla Gravity. Uh, It's a little Colorado-based company. It's specialized in thermoplastic mountain bikes. They definitely had been hinting for quite some time that they were going to go under. And interestingly, they still have not announced officially that they are done. Um, But they clearly are done because uh, another Colorado company, uh, Canfield Bikes, they just officially announced that they have picked up essentially the service in, well, service and parts, I'm not even sure we can call it warranty, but they're doing the support for Gorilla Gravity now. They have on hand all of the frame parts and stuff like rocker links and hardware and front and rear triangles, that sort of thing. Uh, They actually even hired one of Gorilla Gravity's old employees uh, to kind of help them deal with all this stuff. So if you have a Gorilla Gravity right now and you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to find parts for the thing, head over to Canfield Bikes and hopefully you'll be able to find whatever you need over there. But if you have been considering a Gorilla Gravity bike, uh-uh, no more, they're done. It's, it's a sad one because that's one of the few brands in the market that had actually truly differentiated itself as far as uh, a physical product goes, you know, in terms of the materials they're using and the, I guess, the mission of the brand to make like truly durable composite mountain bikes. Yeah, it's kind of sad amongst a sea of same, same product that that's the one that fails. Yeah, it's especially sad because, I mean, they, I, I had been to their factory not too long ago. I mean, they, I mean, their factory is essentially wherever they had that machine set up mm. um, because they were building really, I would say, pretty, really unique product. They were doing, I think I mentioned thermoplastic carbon fiber bikes. They were largely robotically made. They weren't particularly light, but they rode really well. The suspension designs were good. They were super, super durable. Uh, the prices were, reason, prices were reasonable. They had 
a lot of customization options at the ordering uh, at, at time of ordering. So they're really good from from a customer perspective. And yeah, like with all that kind of vertical integration as far as their manufacturing and stuff like that, it, I have to say I was surprised that they were one of the ones that didn't make it because, like as you said, Dave, they had something unique to offer people, and uh, I'm super sad. Yeah, I, I you mentioned all that, and the first thing that pops to mind is whether their their upfront investment tooling costs were just too too great to overcome uh, to make back over you know in in the product that they're selling in the market. I hope that wasn't the case because that. I really like to see thermoplastic make a make a comeback. Well, perhaps the story will we'll, we'll find out in the future. We'll see. As I mentioned, they haven't officially announced that they're closed, although they obviously are. Um, but who knows what's going to happen to that technology with the frame manufacturing? And uh, we might see the concept pop up again somewhere. Hmm. We'll see. Hopefully, yep. I'm going to finish the news segment off with a little bit of uh, like a little bit of good news. Some good news would be nice. Uh, it's not massive good news, unfortunately, but uh, if you're a fan of Zwift, uh, people in the Northern Hemisphere, we are heading into winter. Uh, Zwift just announced some new annual subscription plans because previously everything was just month to month. Uh, the new annual plans are 150 US, 130 uh, British pounds or 150 euros. Sorry, I don't have it, the pricing in Australian dollars, but you all don't need to ride inside anyway. But uh, essentially what that gives you is two months free. Pretty good discount if you're willing to pay for a year up front. You still get Zwift's 30-day money-back guarantee. So uh, if you decide that you, well, if you've never tried Zwift and you want to sign up for an annual plan and you decide you don't like it, you can get your money back. I have a question for both of you on this, which is uh, you live in a mountain town where you have a few months of great weather and then a few months of cold weather, which is more conducive to a different sport. What do you do with your Zwift subscriptions? Do you do you keep them going for all year or do you do you run them for four or five months and then pause them? I don't swift or ride the trainer. Yeah, me neither. That's I, why I'm asking I, if someone else. Is I <laughs> I go skiing yeah. because it's winter. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and well, for me, I do have a Zwift subscription, and and I will say that every time I look at my bank statement, I try to remind myself every time, like, oh, I still have that going. I should cancel mm. that or suspend it or something for the summer, and I forget every single year. So for the past however many years, I have been paying fifteen dollars a month for a Zwift subscription that I only use like three months of the year, maybe yeah, two okay. months of the year. So I should probably fix that. But uh, my guess is I'm probably not alone. So the that. annual would still be cheaper for you, even though you only plan yeah. to switch three months of the year because you, the annual you forget to cancel your membership. Correct. In my, in, in my <laughs> situation, because I always forget to suspend or cancel my Zwift subscription when I'm not using it, yes, the annual would be cheaper. I mean, at this point, if I paid for like 10 years, like I would probably come, still come out ahead because I'd still forget to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I liken it to uh, like I I subscribe to Audible and uh, I keep you know you there are ways that you can pause your account there and and uh, listen to the books that you've you've got and then restart the account when you run out of books. But I I also keep forgetting to pause my account. So uh, and they too also just launched annual. Uh, this is not a, a an ad for Audible by the way, but it's uh, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah it's anyway I, it's just very very similar strategy. Uh, I just find it interesting. So. It's almost like they do it that way on purpose. Mm. <laughs> because like I say, yeah. I'm, I am sure that I am not the only one who intends, who always intends to suspend their monthly subscription and then just forgets. And then another year goes by. Anyway, so that, that's the, that, that's the bit nice. of good news in our news segment this, this week. Let's move on to what we have on our minds. Dave, you want to start out with what's on your mind? Because I know you've got something mm. that you wanted to, to discuss this week that maybe wasn't on the run sheet. I'm curious what, you, what you're thinking of here. Uh, squealy brakes. Um, 
I, I'd been putting up with a set of squealy XT brakes on my trail bike for, for far too long. And basically they, they would be good. You'd go through the bed in process, new pads, whatever, fantastic brakes. And then I wouldn't ride my bike for two or three weeks because I've got test bikes or I get lazy and I get back on the bike and they squeal with no real bite until you get them hot enough to burn off whatever's making them squeal and then they're good again. Uh, And yeah, it's like a self-contamination issue that seems to be fairly common with I'm going to guess that all three of us are familiar with this issue. classic Shimano issue. Yeah, and not really well spoken about. So I, yeah, anyway, I guess... To cut the a long story short, after too long of being annoyed by those brakes and even sometimes like not really wanting to ride that bike because of the the lack of bite in the brakes, um, I gave up and I've gone to Magura. Uh, and early impressions are pretty good. I would say Magura is one of those brake brands that is underappreciated. It's just mm-hmm. not enough pad clearance, though. The pad clearance is very low. Nightmare so setup. The- well, they're a nightmare to set up. You absolutely have to make sure your tabs are faced properly. Like all the setup things have to be where they need to be. Yeah. You know, like rotors perfectly straight and all that other stuff. But like the power is really good. The modulation is fantastic. They're pretty light. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't particularly care for some of their hardware or some like the, are they still, I think they're still calling it so, carbo texture. Like lots the plastic. of plastic. Yeah. yeah. Not a fan of that part of things, but man, like riding a lot of those brakes is really, really good. So yeah, that carbon texture stuff is uh, found out is actually their own. Uh, they own the 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 manufacturing facility and do contract work for carbon injected components. And yeah, so that's that's a factory they have in Asia of of their own creation. So uh, it makes sense that they use it, given that they they own the manufacturing for it. It can feel a little bit plasticky, I guess, because that's exactly what it is. Particularly like the essentially wood screws that hold it all together. They're wood screws. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're hex head wood screws, yeah. but they're T25. wood screws. That is Are these like T25 a, now? Yeah, this okay. is but it fits like a yeah. T26 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say the brakes are absolutely perfect. So they far, the modulation and power is is uh, vastly, vastly better from where I came from. And the ability to jump on a bike and not have it squeal and scare dogs as you ride through the neighborhood is, is pretty good. <laughs> Dave, I'm curious. Megura has an awful lot of models in their range. Yeah. What'd you go with and how'd you pick? It was a hard one. I ended up treating myself and I went with the, I guess their flagship trail brake. So it's the, the MT trail SL. So it's, it's a, it's the MT seven front caliper. So that's their four piston downhill front caliper in a high polish finish. And then it's matched with the MT eight, which is like their weight weenie uh, levers and rear caliper. So it's a, a two piston rear caliper. I'm not convinced I'll, I'll get on with that smaller caliper long-term because it does have a slightly different feel to the front caliper. But yeah, there's nothing stopping you from then changing the rear caliper to match. Not a huge expense to do. So I thought I'd try it out. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, almost like the ultimate downcountry break in that sense. Yeah, running 180 rotors front and back and so far so good. But yeah, the, the front, uh, getting the, the MT7 caliper, that four piston caliper to, to not rub is, is difficult. And I have been working with Chris Gishap, a member and 3D print extraordinaire. And I I think I came up with an idea that, that might revolutionize the alignment of these calipers. So uh, we'll see how it works. I'm still testing it, but I think he might end up selling it. And yeah, I'll live off of this forever. Wow. Revolutionizing things. Yeah. Well, I for one hope it doesn't work because <laughs> I would prefer that you not leave. 
right now because I, I don't I don't <laughs> I can't see myself retiring off the back of uh, Chris Hirschap's, uh selling my idea on his Etsy store. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, maybe that'll find another screwdriver for you. So we'll see. Um, all right. Well, maybe let's move on to what I've got on my mind. Kaylee recently published a review, very long awaited, of Trek's entry level Amanda ALR aluminum road bike, uh, road racing bike, I should say, as we fully expected. So it's not only been a very widely read article, but it's also generated a lot of discussion. Um, and one of the biggest talking points is that, say, the industry wide move to carbon fiber and disc brakes for seemingly anything and everything related to drop bars on the road maybe has made it quite a lot harder for people to get a good road bike at lower price points. You know, one of the reasons why I had asked Kaylee to do that review specifically in particular uh, is just because I wanted to tap on his experience as a collegiate road racer and just talk about how, you know, essentially people who are getting into the sport really just relied on decent aluminum road racing bikes. And those are really hard to find now. I'd also just add that I, I feel like the the demand for entry into road racing is, is also harder to find. Scrabble. Everyone yeah. wants a gravel bike. Yeah. But... uh. Anyway, Zach, what what do you think? I mean, I think the aluminum race bike is awesome. Mm -hmm. Like, whether you're a first time racing or even a Cat One, like, let's say you do crits, you're gonna crash. Carbon bike doesn't do well in a crash, really. Usually, the handlebars come around, break the top tube, someone runs over it, seat stay breaks. Aluminum bike, maybe it gets a dent or some scratches, but yeah, and that that dent will eventually lead to its failure. But at least you can watch it. I guess yeah and it's so much cheaper to replace it's like like everything is electronic now which has its ups and downs but like you used to be like okay I see what I'm gonna race race mountain bikes or cross or whatever where there's a high chance where I crash so I'm gonna have an Altegra re-derailer instead of a dirt race because it's a third of the price and I know that I'm gonna smash it into something and rip it off where now it's like okay instead of that hundred dollar mechanical derailer your derailer is 300 plus dollars and it's the same thing with the frame right like you have a a four thousand dollar carbon frame or a twelve hundred dollar aluminum frame i guess not even looking in terms of uh replaceability i guess before i make my point a lot of people do often mention about how you know aluminum is easier or i guess less expensive to replace um in case you damage it in a crash or dent it and whatever that sort of thing for sure carbon fiber is not necessarily known for its impact toughness we'll say. But one thing that I feel like often goes unmentioned is that when it comes to repairability of a mm-hmm. frame, yep. uh, aluminum's pretty bad. Like yep. You really can't repair an aluminum Arguably frame. I the worst, worst material in that regard. Yeah, but, but much less likely to get broken where it needs repair. Yes, uh, although maybe not so with a lot of the kind of like the modern super light aluminum stuff. Yeah. Um, but carbon fiber is, is quite repairable now. Uh, it mm-hmm. does take, you'd have to have... It's expensive... It takes a lot of time unless you live somewhere that has a repair it's place a, in town. It's, it's a, a process. It is a process. For, but I'm just saying like it is possible oftentimes to repair those carbon fr- carbon frames, whereas with aluminum, it's not possible. Yeah. But anyway, point being still the, 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 the cost of entry is still generally quite a lot lower with aluminum bikes. And one of the things that Kaylee mentioned in that review is that that Amanda ALR, Trek doesn't offer it in any kind of real high-end builds at all, which is understandable. Like, you know, the market clearly has expressed a preference for carbon fiber but i do have to give trek some kudos for offering that frame as a frame set yeah, uh, yeah. it's not very it's not and very cool expensive colors at all. Too. and yeah the, it, so they offer it in just a straight gloss like black, the one that kaylee rode looks cheap yeah but that but they have like a white, white one, one is the, really cool it's super cool i would yeah. totally ride that thing yeah 
and, and you know, Specialized and Cannondale both do the same with their uh, LA Sprint and, and CAD 13. Like, it's, it is, there is still a market there for these high-end alloy alo bikes. And I certainly in the past have been a, uh, have been a customer for them. I think, theory, I still am, given I still own a CAD 12. But it is very cool to see. But I think fundamentally, and I think Kaylee's main point with that article is that it's almost like the disc brake has killed the success of this style of bike. Uh, because in, in that Amanda's case, it's the disc brakes that make it so heavy and make it the price it is. Whereas six, seven, eight years ago, when that bike or the equivalent of that bike had rim brakes on it, it was almost what, like almost two pounds or kilogram lighter, uh, and cheaper as a result of it as well. And from, I guess, Kaylee's point of view, it's like, you didn't really miss out on too much beyond that. I mean, tire clearance is, is arguably the one thing you give up on but that amonda doesn't even have great tire clearance despite having disc brakes so for me that was the main takeaway of kelly's review is just how and i think he is right at the entry level it does feel like disc brakes are coming at the detriment of good value and a nice riding bike i've suddenly got another trek alloy bike here the demana al and it's 10 plus kilograms far more expensive than what you assume an entry level bike to be and suddenly i'm riding these mechanical disc brakes and and really they're not achieving too much versus what a good rim brake would do i do think it's a shame that the industry has kind of lost what these affordable collegiate style race bikes used to be I mean, it's obviously pretty easy to just kind of like pile on to the bike industry and just kind of say that someone you know big disc <laughs> they're, they're just kind of foisting this these things onto people but i also wonder you know dave this is something you and i had talked about at at the old place uh yeah. with one of our uh, with several of the kind of more value uh value oriented bikes that we had tested that had cable actuated disc brakes and we we had talked about whether whether those bikes would have been better not only better but maybe cheaper uh mm -hmm. with a decent rim brake caliper um and it just seems like one of those things where even though functionally and logically that bike would be better like that we also both know that on the showroom floor if someone is looking at that bike versus a disc brake bike they're going to be yeah. like i don't want that thing yeah i mean the the fundamental truth is that this isn't necessarily i mean it is a small part of the bike industry pushing disc brakes onto people but the other side of it is that when brands offered both choices the disc brake one it won on the sales front and therefore Very that's clearly. the direction they went same thing happened in mountain bikes with 27 and a half and 29 inch wheels. A lot of brands offered both because they weren't sure which way the market wanted to go. And it was the 20, the bigger wheel won over. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably unfair for me to blame the industry as a whole for this because it's as much a consumer problem as it is a, an industry problem. But I just currently look at some of these entry level bikes and I still feel like perhaps we need to reassess it. And if you're, specking a bike with mechanical disc brakes to hit a price point maybe that's the bike you need to still be offering as a rim brake and you can do the marketing around it saying the rim brakes the allows them to put a better derailleur on and invest in a better frame and it works out to be a competitive weight to a much higher end bike and right or uh, just say like this bike has rim brakes but it's two pounds lighter yeah exactly and i think cannondale still have the cad optimo which does exactly this and uh yeah i guess I don't know what their sales are like on that bike. I have no insight into that, but I'd hope people are buying this bike because I'd like enough people to buy it that it, other brands take notice. I've really been wanting for, I would say probably the last like couple of years, one of the standards. Oh, I don't yeah. know if you've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They do a, an aluminum race bike yeah. that looks super, super cool. And they offer in rim brake, disc brake, and disc brake with fully internal. 
So like you can pick how, how modern you want it. And it's like a proper cool race bike. That's not like kind of endurance geometry. It's just like a proper race bike. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's, it's such a big topic, but it's basically that there's a few foundation things here, which is also the group set manufacturers are no longer supporting great affordable mechanical group, uh, rim brake group sets. And even the latest stuff, like, okay, so 105, 12 speed is, is disc brake only. But yeah, I mean, even if they offered a 105, 12 speed mechanical, I would, I would argue that's still not quite the set and forget of uh, the days when we had our alloy bikes with rim brakes and mechanical group sets with 10 speed shifting. Uh, right. You know, that 12 and speed stuff, stuff is, is still way more finicky and more service hungry. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I people just, don't want to buy 11 speed. Because twelve speed exists. Yes. Like even if the eleven speed in that use case is better, yeah. People still want twelve speed because yeah. they know it's out there. What if we called it twelve minus one speed? I'll let you put some marketing spin on that. Thirteen minus two, twenty two divided by two. <laughs> how can we how can we how can we establish that to make it sound numerically superior to twelve or thirteen? I don't think people want to buy it regardless. <sighs> okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know, like I know I sound like a grouch at the moment, but it, it does feel like no, you're not being a grouch. It's like it's factual though. The aluminum entry level like race category bike, yeah, from five to ten years ago was better mm-hmm. than it is now. Yeah, like, and, and unfortunately, factual. It's, that's not just being a grouch. That's yeah. like yeah, it's factual. Be- because like you could get you you could have gotten a really nice aluminum frame with a carbon fork, with say like I don't know like a SRAM Rival eleven yep. speed two by eleven mechanical group set and yeah. some good even just aluminum lightweight clincher wheels. Yeah. And that bike would have ripped. Like all three of us have ridden bikes like that. Yeah. I've owned bikes like that. Yeah. It's it's you know, and they're they're competitively light. They they're probably actually weight wise they'd beat a a much higher end Amanda today, like a carbon fiber Amanda, until you get into the the extreme price points, you know, until you tip over like that Altegra price point. That like this, that cheap bike. Aluminum Amanda the aluminum Amanda that Kaylee tested, isn't it like within fifty grams or something of the carbon SL Amanda? It was close, yeah. Like yeah. really close. Yeah. Like why, why would you spend the more money to get the carbon one? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, someone in the comments actually mentioned that they had worked for some brand somewhere. They didn't mention who it was. Um, it said that he had designed a high end aluminum road bike frame to go, uh, to kind of accompany their high end carbon fiber one. And it was within a very small amount of weight. Um, and it rode really well. Like all the bench tests were really impressive. Um, but ultimately the market just won out because both of those bikes were, were for sale for at least one model year and the aluminum one just tanked. I mean, that's specialized yeah. that like right before disc brakes happened, there was, they had like an S-Works LA that came with SRAM Red and carbon cool wheels and everything. And it was so cool and like really well-priced, super light. No one bought it. It's a shame. Well, like, yeah, it, it comes back to this is, this is unfortunately a marketing problem and, and a consumer problem as to why we won't see these bikes. I personally would love them. I, I would love to see them, but yeah, I mean, there's there's just so many barriers to this, and unfortunately, I just don't think the consumer demand is there, despite so many people vocal. I mean, I feel like too, though, it. like a lot of it though is the marketing. Like you said, it's a marketing problem. Like the consumer buys what the marketing tells them. Yeah, and like as you specialize, for example, they have they sponsor the biggest U.S. crit team on specialized bikes. Specialized make an awesome aluminum crit bike. The crit team rides the carbon bike. Like, yeah, why? Good question. Well, I, uh, I'd say that I, I guess we're just going to keep shouting from the rooftops and maybe influencing one or two people. We'll see. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, you know, we'll keep talking about it. We'll keep, we'll keep our eyes on it. I mean, on. that's carbon bikes are sweet too, though. 
They are sweet. They're just they like sweet, but not everyone. What you get for a price point? That's I think what we're yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah, we're specifically yeah. talking lower price point here, not high end. Anyway, we'll see how this continues to develop. The bike industry does have a way of kind of having that pendulum swing back over time. I got, I'm not sure we'll ever see a return to rim brakes. I'm pretty sure that horse has left the stable, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what yeah. happens in the years yeah. ahead. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I think there's an opportunity for someone like Cannondale or, or Specialized to bring back a, a bike and just call it the 2010 10 speed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> there, there's your marketing right there. Let's move on to our next segment, which is, I guess, our newest segment, which has turned out to be quite a fun one. So it's pick one, uh, where we pick a single product category, and then we kind of just go around and see what our favorite product is. So this week, uh, I went ahead and selected one for us. Yeah. Uh, Dropper seat post. This is my first pick one. It's, oh, it is it's, your first pick it's one. A shame Ronan, it's a shame Ronan isn't here to pick a dropper seat post, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll <laughs> persevere without him. I specifically told Ronan that he could probably sit out this week because mm. there's going to be a fair bit of mountain bike content in this one. He's just he just doesn't ride mountain bikes, mm. um, so Ronan is is pleasantly just kicking up his heels right now. Mm. Um, dropper seat pose. I would have guessed he maybe d- wouldn't have had an opinion on that one. So anyway, uh, Zach, since this is new for you, I think you should go first. I, should go first. I was just like hoping I went last. I was very curious what you guys' picks are. I would say it depends on the use, but I would say probably like normal dropper seat post for kind of trail bike enduro bike xc bike in terms of like sizes that are offered and durability is the bike yoke the revive that one is pretty bomber i think it's a little bit more expensive than some of the other options but it actually lasts a long time which is nice and the smoothness of it and like the the speed of it like the the smoothness to go down and then this and the smoothness at the lever is incredible and then the speed of of it going up is brilliant um, yeah, I have I have one that I've switched between a couple bikes now, and it yeah. still works. Ditto, fantastic. Yeah. Other one I would say I know it's only pick one. For more unique case scenario, the Reverb, the Axis one. For like for XC, if you're, let's say you want to drop around for training and some race courses, but then other courses you don't necessarily feel like you need a dropper. So to save the weight without having to tear down the bike, you can just pull one post out and put another post in. I think that's really nice. But it's also really heavy comparatively. So super heavy, ugly, requires charging, yeah. and uh, also the main the main complaint I've seen lately, as lots of people are running longer seat posts. Like I'm, I'm not very tall. James and I are like one seventy ish centimeters. And five, your saddle height's five eight higher than mine. My saddle height's a bit higher, but I'm running a two hundred mil dropper on my right. on my e bike now, and and I can run that on my trail bike too. So you can and get some very long dropper one. posts now. The reverb doesn't go that long. Yeah, which I'm sure they're working on it, they, they will. Yeah. Um, so that's the big downside to the reverb, other than price yeah. and that it's a bike. I guess, and that it, yeah, I would say bike yoke for trail and most XE stuff. Yeah. Enduro. And then I just think the access for like certain XE scenarios is really nice. Fair, not not fair. for trail bikes. Okay. Okay. Dave, what, what's, what's um, your selection here? Exactly the same as Zach's. That's <laughs> oh, quite scary. That's not very exciting. Um, so yeah, bike yoke. Uh, as far as a mechanical operated dropper is is my favorite. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the Wolf Tooth Resolve lately, and I actually still think the bike yoke has the edge as far as uh, long term smoothness. Um, my Wolf Tooth Wolf Tooth got a bit sticky sooner than I expected, and doesn't uh, been out they, that long. They are fully rebuildable, but you you actually have to like even just to clean the main wiper seal, you actually have to pull the Quite whole a thing process. apart. Yeah, yeah. So 
it's something I could do at home, but it's like you do need quite a few tools to do it. And I would say it's yeah, probably the average person is not going to do it most, at home. No, no, I'd say it is beyond what most home mechanics would would do, um, even if it's just purely because of the tools that you are required to have. So yeah, so bike yoke is where I'm at for mechanical. But then as far as pure, like based on the pure smoothness of actuation, the speed of return, ease of use, like just how consistent it is the the reverb axis is is untouchable in my mind it is really really impressive and then best part uh routing some dropper seat posts into some frames is just an absolute pain it's one of like the most fiddly tasks you can do on a bicycle and i would say you don't work on enough time trial bikes what's that <laughs> i would say you don't work on enough time trial bikes to say it's the most fiddly thing you can do okay it's it's it depends on the seat post but if you're if your seat post is like exactly the wrong length for the frame you're trying to put it into if you drop a post and it's like kinking the cable at the bottom as yeah, it, then it, as it hits you know as it's being routed uh around out of the seat tube or it's a, one of those dropper posts that you have to connect the cable at the the post end rather than oh, uh you know terrible. attaching attentioning it at the at the remote end there's just a lot of pain points there so uh, you're just talking about the housing getting kinked if yeah. it's too low that is one where i really like the one up Yep, because then you can just put a little spacer in there and reduce the travel. Yeah, and then your post works with the cable still moving smoothly. Yep. Oh, perfect segue, Zach, because yep. that's actually my that's pick. yours. Yeah, I have one of my one of my bikes, and it has a lot of slop in it, and it creaks. So I will I will say the one up <laughs> from from purely a uh, like a functional standpoint, it is not as good as the other posts that we have just been talking about. But one of the things I like about it is. It's quite inexpensive. Uh, you can get it in very long drops. The The stack height's pretty low, um, which is good for me because I, as, as we already mentioned, my saddle height's pretty low. I love that it is exceptionally easy to work on. They make parts very readily available for it. It is easy to, to, to disassemble. Uh, it does get sticky fairly quickly, but the process to clean up that seal and to re-lube the bushings is literally less than five minutes mm -hmm. it's an incredibly incredibly quick job it does work quite smooth i think uh it's easy to set up as zach mentioned you can you can tune the travel on it so you can kind of you can kind of customize it as you need to depending on the situation it doesn't try to be the fanciest or like the anything est of any dropper post out there it's just kind of like good a good workhorse option not too heavy not too light certainly not very expensive Oh, look at that. And Dave's got one in a box right there. I think at this point I've purchased three of them. So I, I would say, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's my, that's my it's, selection. Yeah, it's actually the seat post I've probably sold to friends the most, like or sold friends on the most uh, in that. Yeah, I just I'm forever uh, recommending that post for the reasons you recommended, like the price point combined with like the, the ability to easily adjust the travel so you don't really have to get too stressed about whether you're five or ten mil off for fitting in the frame uh yeah i think it's it is just a very very reliable um option and yeah if you're if you're recommending a, a product you don't want to recommend they spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars and then it's like doesn't fit in their frame because the height mm -hmm. is wrong or, yep yep that said i do also like the reverb axis i will admit yeah uh i i not too long ago did a review of that cervello zfs5 uh and the 100 mil version that i tested doesn't come with a dropper seat post and folks at sram were kind enough to loan me a uh, reverb axis and that saved me about an hour of my life yep. just because i could just drop it in there and not have to worry about yep. routing anything 
Yep. I did the same when special, uh, testing the Specialized Epic World Cup. I just took the reverb axis out of my own personal bike and mm-hmm. dropped it in. And yeah, there gave that bike a dropper. Um, related, I'll, 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 I'll use this chance just to shout out that we do have a, a list of our, some of our favorite, most memorable products of, uh, of the year coming. So that's uh, due next week uh, on the on this, the publishing schedule. And just to give a little teaser, um, I'm actually including that that Axis dropper in my list. And I'll, Ooh, I'll perhaps oh, explain myself more, Controversial. more concisely uh, when that comes. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Because this is my first pick one, and I don't necessarily remember the rules. Is there also a dropper post that you would shy away from? No, but I suppose that could be a, an interesting. interesting development in the pick one category because it's none. not like this is set in stone or anything. I feel like droppers have come a long way in recent years. Used to like five years ago, there were a lot that I'd say don't don't get. Whereas now, like there's, I don't know, there's a lot of a lot of pretty good options. I would say, generally speaking, don't buy a dropper that you can't get spare parts for. So like there are some there are some brands that you can buy very cheaply, but if you try to find like a uh, internal cartridge for them, they just almost non-existent and at that point that product in one to two years time will become disposable uh i would say don't buy an old reverb at all period yes fair unless it comes with money yeah i don't know suspension seat posts are quite nice though now <laughs> <laughs> dual <brutal>. function <laughs> zach I, I like that idea we could we could pick one but also pick another one like huh. a stay away from this one. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. well D- Dave, well, you and I will discuss this moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on here because we do still have that, that we're interview at the end of the episode that we want to drop in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't want this thing to go too long. So let's just finish up with our PSA here. So this week's PSA actually came as a suggestion from one of our escape collective members, Rob Martin. It's a good one. I would say, uh, PSA is if you are running tubeless on your road, mountain gravel bike, whatever, and you haven't done anything with it in quite a while, or maybe it's been quite a while since those wheels have been set up, uh, there's a decent chance that your tubeless valve stems are probably clogged, at least partially. So this week's PSA is to maybe just pull those things out and take a, t- take a little look at them, because if you've noticed that it's become a little bit harder to inflate your tires, that there's probably some sealant that has solidified in that, in that valve stem or in that valve core. And thankfully those things are cheap, easy to replace. So maybe just pull those things out and take a look at them and then decide whether or not you need to replace them. Uh, one thing that I know we have talked about, and I think Wade actually brought this up a while ago. Is there any good way that we know of to clean a clogged Presta valve core? The actual core itself, yeah. not the valve stem. I don't know of one. I'm sure you could soak it in something, but they're so cheap. And they're so little. Or you just like take it out of a tube that went flat. Yeah, you can normally get like a pick or something. Like if you take the valve core out, you can put a pick carefully into it uh, to clean it out, or like a, a tiny little bottle brush, which you can get. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not talking about the the yeah, valve. Yeah, the core. I'm not you, talking about the stem. I'm talking about the actual core. Oh, the core. Yeah, you can soak them in soapy water, but I mean the price of them. I mean they're they're literally like fifty cents a dollar at most. Or you take yeah. them out, as Zach said, you take them out of a punctured tube, so that at that point they're arguably free. Um, or take them take them out of somebody else's good tube. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, trade. Yeah. Give them the clogged one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just given the cost, I mean, it's, yeah, that you, you never quite get them as good as they are when they're new, uh, even after you, you soak them in a, a soapy water or whatever. So for me, it's just, it's not worth the effort. And, and often like by the time they're clogged, you've probably also bent them a little bit or something like that. So yeah, just, just given the cost and ease of replacement, I would lean that way. 
Do uh do we have any feelings on any of the alternative valve stems that are specifically designed to not clog, like ones like the the Reserve Fillmore or like the ones from seventy six projects, stuff like that? I don't know. I feel like all of those. It's like the counter argument is it's just use straighter because it's already it solves the problem because it's a bigger diameter. But also like none of those are gonna ha- work until it's like everyone across the board, all companies decides this is what a valve is gonna be, and until that happens, which it won't, then we're stuck with Presta. Um, right. Well, I, yeah, I feel like there are better Presta fitting valves, like the the Fillmore you mentioned. But I mean, they all come with their own quirks, and I I think yeah, there's some point you're figuring out what trade-off you prefer right so well uh i guess to go along with the the psa in general if you are running tubeless and assuming you are running presta valves which is more likely than not uh it's a good idea to just have some of those valve cores on hand at any given moment because it's just kind of a pain it's nicer to have ones that are clean yep uh and they're cheap probably worth mentioning the main reason that they get clogged is for people inflating their tires with the the valve in a low enough position of the wheel that the sealant can come up through the valve. So, yeah, if you just position your tire where the valve is uh, like three or nine o'clock or higher uh, in in position, so all the sealant is pulled away from the valve, then you're not going to be forcing sealant out through the valve whenever you connect your pump. Um, It's also better for your pump and better for your gauge. So, yeah, just don't inflate your tubeless tires with the valve at the bottom of the wheel. Okay, there you go. Well, that's our handy PSA for the week. No one has anything else to add. We're just going to go ahead and shut this one down here. Well, aside from the interview, uh, well, then that means that this will pretty much do it for this week's episode of Geek Warning. So thanks as always for listening. And just a reminder, uh, like I said, we are closing out this week's episode with that weird interview that Dave did the other day. So make sure you stick around for that. If you're a tool uh, and also, And if not, no offense taken. don't forget about the membership promo that i mentioned earlier so everything that we do here at escape collective is directly and completely funded by our members so if you enjoy what we're doing here please head over head on over to escapecollective.com slash join and enter podcast in all caps uh in the promo code box at checkout to get your first month for a dollar if you're already a member thanks so much we really do appreciate each and every one of you so with that bid you farewell until next week and here's that interview Let's start with uh, getting to know your voices. Who are we speaking with? And uh, yeah, I'll get you to introduce yourselves and what you do for Vera. So my name is Lutz Buchholz. I'm director of international sales at Vera. As the title does say, uh, I'm doing with my team everything outside Europe, uh, Asia, US, South America, South Africa, Oceania. Why we are here and uh, trying to give our best. Hi there, I'm Ralf Josch. Um, I'm 15 years with Vera and looking after overseas territories. My position is sales director overseas and one of the biggest markets I'm looking after is Oceania. That means uh, Australia, New Zealand. And we are now uh, since two years looking heavily into the bike market segment. All right. Well, I put a shout out on, on Instagram asking for people to submit their questions. Some were straight up silly, so uh, we've left some of those out. But uh, yeah, we'll do roughly about 15 questions with you and uh, see if we can answer some commonly asked questions related to the brand. So I guess first up, the big one, how do you pronounce it correctly? The correct pronunciation in German, and I'm German, is Vera. I know Anglophile people will normally say Vera Mm -hmm. because they roll the R, but that's fine with us. But Vera is the correct word. All right. uh, Following that, I had... uh, Someone who is clearly anglicized asked, why don't you spell it with a V? 
the uh, name of the company is deriving from the two founders. One guy was called Werner, that's his surname, and the other one Amtenbrink. So they cut the W-E-R of Werner and added the A of Amtenbrink and made it Vera. So it's a German letter, Interesting. W, okay. that's all. Yeah, right. And when was the company founded? 1936. And where is it based? In Wuppertal, the cradle of German hand tool making. Okay. Uh, we gave a presentation earlier and you mentioned some other hand tool brands that are in that area. It sounds like a, a hub of, a hub of uh, amazing hand tools. W- what else is there? It absolutely is. I would say one of the finest uh, hand tool makers in the world are in that place of Wuppertal for almost two centuries. Uh, besides us, there is Knipex, probably the uh, most versatile uh, manufacturer of pliers. Mm-hmm. And, and a few others, of course, hammer makers, many others that do that uh, traditionally for uh, a long, long time. Yeah, and some big, names, quality, big, big names, names in the automotive worlds as well. Yeah, Definitely. Okay. Let's dig in a bit to the how, uh, how Vera comes into the bicycle industry. So I guess as a rough percentage, uh, how big is, is the bicycle industry in, in Vera's business? Uh, we started like four or five years ago to look into that business. And I would roughly estimate that currently we are dealing in that bikes market segment for Vera in, in, in a five percentage range. Five to six, seven percent. Okay. It's, it's a little difficult to... Yeah, measure that, but it's it's growing and, and it's growing. it's it's yeah. growing. That's why we look into this. Yeah. Okay. So you're traveling around, seeing some, uh, inviting oh, yeah. people like me to to events like this. And it's the beautiful part of the business. It's exciting. And um, what I can say is that we try to uh, put the finest tools of our range into um, sets and solutions for uh, the pros and the weekend warriors and the and the riders uh, of all kind, yeah. mountain bikes, road bikes. So that's what we do, even e-bikes. Yeah. So I mean, when you when you first got your start, when I when I first saw you appear at Eurobike, the the world's largest cycling trade show, a few years ago, uh, you would have just had what I would say your your traditional tools, your standard product line, and you'd sort of remarketed them a little bit, put a put a bicycle logo on them, and there weren't big changes to it. But I guess in the last year or so, that's that's changed. You've now got some truly cycling specific products. Uh, you've got the tie lever set. That's a multi tool with a a clever bit. Yeah, what else, what else has happened in the, the bicycle world recently? Well, yes, of course. Uh, besides our uh, traditional tools for all kinds of tradies, we try to uh, put the um, sets together to make them uh, bike-friendly. Bike so whatever uh, size of, of screw you have on a bike, we try to uh, cover that. And we would also add here and there some additional gimmicks like a chain breaker for instance that is but when we do a chain breaker we definitely do a different one from the rest of the market so it has to fit our philosophy and uh, be of high quality and uh, yeah that's what we do we do a special set combos which uh, the bikers will like because the quality is uh, outstanding and above the rest the product range is growing all the time i mean let's just mention the the new bicycle products uh for me it, it feels like I think every twice a year you have sort of uh, event launches and you have a, a whole new range of products that are that added to the catalog. How, what are you doing to keep it sort of understandable for the customer? Because it's getting, it's getting what? It's, it's thousands and thousands of, of product uh, numbers now, right? Yeah, right. I mean, um, definitely we try to keep it simple. Yeah. So um, as you know, we are worldwide active. So uh, dealing with 
foreign languages. I mean, as you can hear, we are not native English speakers, so but mm-hmm. we try. Hopefully, uh, you can understand us out there. <laughs> uh, but we are active also in Japan, in Korea, and so on. So we try, of course, to work with a lot of animation videos, non-verbal, to show how the tools shall be used, should be used. And of course, we are also asking then the experts, uh, not that we are looking stupid in that videos. Speaking of those tools, where where are they made? Our tools are 95% made by ourselves, uh, by our two factories in the Czech Republic. Czech Republic, a neighbor country of Germany, long, long uh, history in metalworking. Um, and Vera has decided well, a while ago, like end of the 90s, um, where we couldn't see any growth potential factory-wise in Germany anymore because uh, the area where we are, we're just a mixed area with also uh, living homes and so on. So people were complaining if you want to do some extra shifts on the weekend and the windows were open. And at the end, then there was a decision taken to move uh, production into Czech Republic. So we are there active now since almost 30 years. We have now opened up three years ago a second factory in the Czech Republic. Yeah, and we are really happy. A lot of skilled workers, a lot of traditional metal workers, uh, good, uh, fairly well-trained people. And um, I would say looking back for Vera, it was the right decision to do so. And that is, those those two facilities are your own? They're, 100%, they're your own employees, your own facilities. Owned, okay. 100% owned by Vera. And so yes. all of your all of your screwdrivers, all of your bits, all of your hex keys are out of one of those two? Correct. Okay. All right. What What isn't out of those facilities? Yeah, good. Let's say, as you know, we have really a wide, deep range of, of products. So there are a couple of products not belonging to our uh, core range. Um and uh, we do also a lot of uh, packaging and so on. And uh, these things, meanwhile, are also being outsourced, uh, coming from a couple of other countries. But this is always license controlled uh, by Vera to guarantee the highest okay. possible quality. Yeah. So I guess people listening uh, would be familiar that you do a, a large range of torque tools. Is that is that a product that's in-house? Are you? Or? Uh, the waste majority of our torque tools is done in-house. So all the torque screwdrivers uh, you see from Vera are 100% uh, made by Vera, made in the Czech Republic. The newly launched Safe Torque, perhaps also interesting for the bicycle industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, people may ask why Safe Torque isn't every torque wrench safe? Uh, no, it's not. It also depends yeah. a little bit of the sensitivity of uh, each user. On the other hand, what we are doing, some of our torque wrenches are being made in Taiwan, licensed and uh, under under guidance and surveillance of Vera local people. That's gotcha. Made to your standards and all. Yeah. Correct. Own designs. Yeah. yeah. No compromise. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned that safe talk. It's it's a product I've been playing with for uh, a number of months now. Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, given that you just mentioned it, I'm keen to just uh, stay on that for a second because you mentioned not all torque wrenches are safe. Uh, can you can you explain that? For instance, if you have a normal click talk, um, people may think wonderful. It clicks and uh, done. And you know, also very often 
they know okay they have to go back and but sometimes they are doing click 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 mm-hmm. uh and that is already the main reason where they are going over the limit yep. and especially if it comes to a torque values let's say up to 10 12 newton meters even if the people might think that they have applied the right torque if they would do it on a torque meter and we had some pretty good presentations uh, going on that days uh, we could easily yeah. prove that 20 30 40 percent of over torquing can be easily done by using a regular conventional click torque wrench with the safe torque as the name stands for itself you are unable to over torque at all yeah so there's a couple of things going on there most people double click or triple click a torque wrench which sort of impacts the bolt a bit as you click it uh so that's that's one mistake that's that's common with a regular torque wrench and the others you sort of apply your weight onto the beam after it clicks and that is over torque but the safe torque has this this override clutch in it basically you can just keep clicking it around its entire revolution and it'll it'll basically stay at the exact same torque figure you you can't accidentally add more weight or or more torque to that bolt which is is pretty cool i mean I don't want this to sound like an advert, but uh, I guess this tool's worth checking out because it's it, it's also got another unique feature, which is there's a little sliding collar that lets you use it as a ratchet, so you can lock out the torque feature. Which again, I'm I'm not aware of anyone else doing that at this time. Uh, no, it's pretty unique. So basically, yeah. yeah, there are three features: really safe torque, yeah, clockwise and anti-clockwise. Plus, you can use the safe torque by putting it into torque off mode using it as a regular ratchet. Yeah. Uh, are there any plans for a bigger version of it? So at the moment, it's what? It's 2 to 12 newton meters, is it? Right now, let's say we have 2 to 12 newton yeah. meters uh, in uh, two designs. One is with the quarter hex uh, for, for direct bit drives. The other one is for a quarter square drive for, mm-hmm. uh, to adapt right away sockets in it. We also have sets available. I would not sing here now, but you know the song, uh, It's Now or Never. Um, well, I can't really tell. Our R&D is quite busy, and um, who knows what the future will bring. Okay, all right. There's a, there's a smile there. Brendan wants to know, 19mm uh, and 3 quarter inch uh, Imperial sockets, are they exactly the same? Hopefully not. No, they're made def- they're made separately. Absolutely. Okay, so it's not just the label. No. Nope. Are there any plans to expand further in the USA? Definitely. Yeah. So USA is for us uh, has become really one of the fastest growing markets. So we are active in the US now since uh, with our own daughter company Vera Tools North America since uh, end of the nineties. I would say we have seen tremendous growth the last, uh, especially the last five to six years in the US. Um, yeah, we are uh, always looking for for new opportunities, for new options. We do think that the US market has still tremendous potential for growth for us. Uh, well, at the end, it comes to people. We also have to find the right tool rebels at site who can spread the word. We are looking for yeah new employees, uh, new opportunities, but definitely yeah, US is uh, one okay. of the future focus growth markets for Vera. Getting back to the product side of things, you've got some bicycle kits already. What are the plans there? Are there plans to have more bicycle kits coming? Uh, yeah, any anything in the works that you might be able to share? 
Oh, usually now we are about to reduce it again. We have way too many. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I mean, sure, we are we are getting more and more involved in in the bicycle market. Uh, our CEO is even, I would say, a lunatic uh, bicycle rider. Meanwhile, okay. so he is always uh, also checking out what what is needed on his own bike, yeah, to yep. to get faster and more reliable than. And uh, he's squeezing our R&D uh, to the max as he could. Uh, so I think, well, let's wait for the future. As you said, twice a year we will be coming out with new products. Uh, next product launch will be March. Mm -hmm. If or if not, there will be a bicycle set or new bicycle sets included. I think future will tell. Okay. All right. I think it's probably worth mentioning that you just released a new bicycle set as well, didn't you? It's uh, what's I don't, I'm not sure what the name is, but it's the whole the whole kit with the chain breaker in it, and you've got the yeah, handle yeah. and the Zyklop Yeah, that mini. was the the now the bicycle set 3A, which is basically uh, the well-known Toolcheck Plus yep. uh, in a quite sturdy design. There we added uh, into the uh, thing the the chain breaker tool. Uh, plus uh, really two nice pouches, one more for the for the stationary uh, use at home and one even small zipper pouch uh, to take with you on your ride because as me, you're already carrying some weight with you so you don't want to have uh, extra 20 kg of tools with you. Yes, uh, I suspect you, you might uh, dance around this subject a little bit, but... Uh what about bicycle specific tools? So you've got the little tiny little chain breaker, which has a uh, quarter inch bits on either side of it. So you add a handle, you add the, you add a ratchet and that's your chain breaker. Uh, you've got some tie levers, but is, uh, can we expect more bicycle specific tools? I would say you can always expect something from Vera. Uh, you can expect innovative tools. Um, but please understand that I cannot go too sure. much into detail here what is into our pipeline since uh, then on the one hand uh, the surprise uh, early March would be gone and on the other hand I think our CEO would shoot me right away. Any plans to add complete sets of quarter inch hex shank metric bits to the range? So I guess complete sets I mean they, they're probably thinking every metric bit you make in one set. That's a good question. Haven't Thought about. I mean, we are we are listening to the market, and uh, let's say after that we we made also a note. Um, ah, the question is really: Do you want to have everything in one set? A lot of people have already metric bits here and there. The bigger ones usually hex. The thing is, yeah, you lose it or you might break it. Mm -hmm. The bigger ones usually not. And then these are also the expensive ones. And once you don't break it, why would you always go for a complete set? Yeah. So that's always the question. Yeah, is there market demand out there? We are carefully listening, carefully watching. Let's wait for the future. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally would love to see you guys do a, a master set of... Uh of everything. I think okay. that'd be quite cool. But uh, I should pin something up then for us, yeah. please. Uh, question from David, not myself. Uh, why don't the bigger bits, six millimeters and up, have labels on them? Up to six millimeter, we have labels, but from six millimeter, it's exactly the size of the shaft. So we would have to, uh, to put a label or a banderole, as we say, to show the size in a big, in a big size way. You know, you don't need reading glasses, which <laughs> we do for the others, uh, which we call take it easy, by the way. We would have to reduce the shank again 
and that's not very uh that's physically not making sense doesn't make sense makes a weak spot yeah it makes it a weak spot and it wouldn't it would not make sense correct uh we did get a question asking will you ever release a compact size torque wrench that spans two to 16 newton meters and i think your safe torque is much more compact than it is two to 12 newton meters yeah so you're talking up to 16 newton meters there's a chance um i'm not in touch with the product development regarding that now but uh yeah why not this could be possible okay. i'm not saying never say no okay that's that's a common range for bicycles i think is where that question is coming from mm-hmm. so a lot of bicycle branded torque wrenches i'm not going to say bicycle specific because a lot of the the bicycle torque wrenches are a rebranded product but uh yeah they they, they typically go two to 16 newton meters and I think part of that is that uh, Shimano cranks uh, are like a three to fifteen unimeter range torque, so quite a quite a common uh, request on a bicycle, I guess. Okay, note you taken. Take a note, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, is Vera working on a digital torque wrench? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think our philosophy is to concentrate on the bigger market analog mm-hmm. torque wrenches and to make them the best we can, to make them superior to the rest of the market rather than looking at uh, Me Too products in the digital range, which we believe also has a lower demand, also in the bike market. So we better improve the analog ones. I guess expanding that question for for myself, uh, do you do anything with a battery? Nope. There you go. There's nothing we have that takes a battery. Okay. So everything is mechanic. I like that. All right. Uh, question on the, on the talks. Um, I recently wrote an article all about talks and highly recommended uh, Vera Talks. I basically said it's it's the benchmark in terms of fitment. Uh, it has the least amount of um, chance of cam out the way it fits the bolt uh, in my testing. Uh, but yeah, some I have had some people comment that the the new talks that you do with the holding function, which is a little little detent ball that keeps the the fastener attached to the tool. The fitment can be a bit problematic on some bicycle components. Um, so specifically, I think Shimano chainring bolts in a T30 and then zip stem bolts in a T25. It seems like that holding function gets in the way and the bolt's undersized. What's the answer there? Yeah, good. Let's say, so first of all, small correction, uh, the torques with the holding function have no ball detent. It's okay. just purely, it's uh, conical shaped and it's purely mechanical fit. Uh, but of course, due to this conical shape, the recess step, but since at a certain time it will get stuck, so you will sometimes not have, depending on the tolerances in the screw fasteners, you will not have the full recess depth, means then, of course, limited torque, which you can apply, and then for certain application, yeah, holding function is not the right talks yeah so it's uh, not like this that always as hard as as you can but it's also from the hardness then what we say always the right hardness for the application same with the holding function yeah? so we have talks with and without holding function and not every application is uh, most suitable to have the holding function then we highly recommend to take tools without the holding function which are also available now throughout the entire range yeah okay so i guess my advice there is if you're taking your, your bicycle mechanic seriously then and you you've tried weirer torques and you, you like the feel of them and how they fit the bolt then it, it's probably worth owning both the holding function and the the non-holding function 
as a manufacturer, that would be, of course, greatly appreciated. <laughs> Just buy it double. I think uh, quite a few listeners might, um, if, they, if they're familiar with the Vera brand, they'd probably know you for your, your rainbow hex keys, the, the sleeve keys, the, the beautiful colors. I think quite a few listeners of, our, of ours have probably owned that set. Uh, but after that, I'd say your, your little mini quarter-inch bit ratchet is probably the other tool that I, I think a lot of people own. It's tiny, but how much torque can it take? For the, for the mini bit ratchet, we guarantee a torque value of 65 newton meters. Um, we had one really very, very brave user once on the internet, and uh, <laughs> he was actually uh, trying, uh, no, not trying, uh, he was doing it. He was changing uh, tires at his car with this <laughs> mini ratchet and was basically really putting an extension on and was uh, loosening the bolts. And uh, he said he did it up to 110 newton meters. However, we wow. do not recommend sure. to do that. Uh, yeah. 65 newton meter, this is the rating which we guarantee. And, uh, and I, I, I would say with the, the handle length on that, you'd struggle to probably do more than 12, maybe 15 with that handle length. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the regular range sure. you would be able to apply with such kind of thing. But yeah. again, yeah, so um, if you like and if you have strong hands and strong arms, 65. The tool will Okay, that's withstand. that's quite impressive. Yeah, right. Amp Cycleworks wants to know uh, any plans to add a long breaker bar to the to the range. Again, we are we are Germans. We have long dark winters. Uh, <laughs> obviously, our R and D is um, sometimes a little bit bored. I really can't answer this specifically question now in detail. Future will tell. Uh, and I guess just to wrap it up. What do you wish people knew about the brand that you, you feel isn't well in, understood in the market? What's the elevator pitch? When you're, when, you're, when you're in an elevator and you've got 30 seconds and someone says, oh, we're and they look at your shirt and they go, what, what do you do? We believe in challenging the standards. Yeah? So we really, we don't uh, stick to the current status quo. We think tools can be developed further can be designed better, and that is what we are aiming for. It is uh, our passion, our belief, and uh, I guess we will not be uh, stopping uh, our innovative, sometimes crazy, sometimes loud, and sometimes uh, nerdy activities <laughs> throughout the globe. And I guess just to, just to follow on from that, uh, if, if someone in the bicycle world that isn't already using your tools, is still listening to this and hasn't switched off by now, what tool would you suggest they start with to get the, the Vera experience? A couple of bicycle sets, definitely really interesting. So the bicycle set 3A, which we newly launched uh, with the pouches, neat designed with the tool check plus, with the chain breaker in, gives you a good uh, variety to start with. Uh, but also our bicycle set four with a mix of uh, hex and torx L keys, uh, well accepted. Well, and then I would say uh, starting from that and then you move over to bicycle set uh, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. And eleven. <laughs> and oh, safe and talk. And safe talk. One of everything. This would, of course, our wish uh, would be, <laughs> uh, but um, I think 3A, bicycle set 3A would be a good start. All right. Honestly speaking, when we talk about the quality and what we would recommend to the weekend warriors or the riders that 
occasionally take a ride, uh, we would recommend to them the tools that are actually 100% approved by the guys with the apron. That means the guys that are working in the workshop of the park shops. And uh, they really love Vera. They give us that feedback and uh, that's where we start. We start with the workshops and the professionals. So the professional mechanics, we have a few ambassadors there in that, in that uh, area. It, they really are the ones that recommend the products also then to the, to the other people in the shops. And uh, they see that. The ones that are looking for quality, they come back to us. I think that's a, a good place to wrap it up. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And, uh, Thank you. 